0: What a great statement of faith for all of us. Well, it's the first weekend of November, which reminds me that Thanksgiving is coming. Now, I imagine some of you will be surprised, since I start listening to Christmas music in September, that my favorite time of year is Thanksgiving. I love the traditions and the family traditions we have at Thanksgiving, and um, I come from what from what many people would think is a strange situation. When I was growing up, Thanksgiving was celebrated with both sides of my family under one roof. Both grandmothers, my mother's father, my dad's um, father's mother, my mother's mother, wow, that was so hard to get out, uh, were under one roof. And I always have had, since, I've, since before I was born, my aunts and uncles and cousins on one side of the family are close with my aunts and uncles and cousins on the other side of the family so my mother in just a few weeks will once again host thanksgiving for our extended family and she said this past week she's expecting 55 maybe 60 and here's the best part we all get along and we love spending time together maybe that's strange in the situation you come from and uh, mom cooks most of it although we're grateful to have the beacon uh, drive-in that covers in fills in the gaps for us in Spartanburg, but I've inherited so much of a great family heritage, and that's not to say anything financial, because neither of my grandparents had very much of earthly value, but my father's mom in particular left such a strong Christian heritage to me that I even still find moments where I am just so thankful for her influence on my life and on the influence, uh, her influence on my family. Recently, G.C. Robinette, who is one of our uh, honorary lifetime deacons, he's a 93-year-old member of this church who's hopefully joining us by television right now. Well, he told me that his grandmother's maiden name was Church. Her name is Alice Virginia Church. She was born in 1864 in Wilkes County, North Carolina. And he said, Wes, I wonder if we're related. Well, took me a while, but I finally did the research. I pulled together what I know about my family. And I discovered that I also, well, it was my great great grandfather, Joel Church, who was born in 1864 in Avery County, North Carolina. So just right next to Wilkes County. And then I found out that his father, Philip, was born in Wilkes County. So I thought, we've got to be related. Well, it turns out my great 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 grandfather, I know you're following, there'll be a test later, Philip Church, his grandfather had a brother named Aaron who had a granddaughter named Alice Virginia Church who had a grandson named GC Robinette Junior so who would have thought hundred and fifty years later this family would be reunited at the First Baptist Church of Columbia <laughs> so GC who has been a member of this church since 1936 is one of my long-lost cousins and so uh, Rowena I don't know but perhaps my mother would love to invite y'all to Thanksgiving next year at my house. <laughs> she definitely believes the more the merrier. <laughs> There's a lot of emphasis these days on learning about our family heritage. And so some of you may spend time on websites or in the library trying to piece together where your family comes from. I know folks even send in for tests their DNA to determine where they come from, perhaps find about family members they find out about family members they never knew. Well, I've always been a little concerned to look too far, you know, because you're you're kind of like, I know there's got to be a bad apple somewhere in that tree. And when you're from Appalachia, you know, there's a lot of bad apples in the tree, but (laughs) in fact, I know that some of you, probably this morning, have more hurt than inspiration when you think about your family heritage. The family you maybe came from cursed you or belittled you or ignored you to the point uh, that uh, this morning it's not bringing encouragement to you uh, because you lack that godlike love that a parent or a family member should show. And so when we th- talk about family heritage, it may be that you think less of yourself because of where you come from or who you come from. And you think, if only I would have been or if only would I, if I would have had a certain type of family. Well, today we are going to hear about a man who inherited a real tragic family heritage. But God got hold of his life, and he is celebrated as one of the great heroes of Israel and Judah. There may have been some who were more wiser, some who were more wealthier, some who were more powerful. But the subject of today's sermon is one of the most courageous kings in all of Israel and Judah's history. And his name was Josiah. We are continuing our series this morning called This Is My Story. And this man's story is one that we still tell even 2,600 years later. He was born 600 years before Jesus walked the earth. He inherited a fragile throne and a tarnished crown. But one thing I've learned through studying this series over the last several weeks is that you never can tell what God might do with a person whose life is yielded to him. Josiah's story reminds us that we all have a story to, ha- to tell. And I sure hope that over the last several weeks you've taken time to really reflect on your own story. And hopefully you've even shared your story with people around you. Because we know that there are many people around us who need to know about the grace that you know. They want to know what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus. They want to know what it's like to have the hope in your heart. As you look toward the future. So if you have not, would you make sure this week you take time to share your own story. So let me take you back a few thousand years in Israel's history. So you can understand the context of the passage we're going to look at this morning in uh, 2 Chronicles 34. When the kingdom of Israel splits, this is after Solomon passes on and his son Rehoboam takes over. The kingdom splits in two. And the northern kingdom retains the name Israel. But the capital moves to Samaria eventually. The southern kingdom takes the name Judah and they retain the capital city of Jerusalem. In fact, the kings of Judah uh, um, come from the royal line of David. They still practice a lot of the priestly things that took place under Solomon's reign. Well, one of Judah's good kings is Hezekiah. He honors the Lord in his reign. But his son turns the nation in the opposite direction. His name is Manasseh. So King Manasseh reintroduces Baal worship to the people of Judah. He brings in wicked religious activity to the nation of Judah. He replaces the holy sites with idols and with altars to false gods. He introduces the practice of pagan prostitution in the temples of the kingdom of Judah and in Jerusalem. Manasseh. In 2 Kings 21, is described as filling Jerusalem from one end to the other with the people's blood. After his death, his son takes the throne, King Amon. And he's no better. He does exactly what God says don't do. What God says is wrong, that's what Amon does. He's so corrupt that his own lieutenants, his companions, his friends, have him killed. He's assassinated. So now the throne falls to his eight-year-old son named Josiah. What do you do when your grandfather followed black magic and your father is a scoundrel and your nation is corrupt? What do you do? Do you follow suit? I think there are plenty who would have. I'm sure that some people looked at Josiah and said he's probably just another chip off the old block. So we're going to pick up our story in the year 640 B.C., more than 2,600 years ago, and I'm going to read to you now from 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I'll read the first three verses to begin. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left from the eighth year of his reign. While he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. Josiah is declared king at the age of eight. So we would recognize that there is somebody who has the reins at this point of the kingdom until he's prepared to really take control now we don't really know who had great influence over josiah at this point some people speculate that the prophets jeremiah and zephaniah may have influenced josiah as a young boy what we do know is somewhere along the way josiah josiah is flipping through you know the family album and he's saying who am i going to be like and his finger lands on his forefather king david and he decides that's who i'm going to emulate One thing is for sure, we cannot choose our parents, but we can choose our mentors. We can choose who we are going to model our life after. The text says when Josiah is 16 years old, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Just 16. What a great word for our young people, our youth, our college students, young adults. The New Testament says don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example So if you're here today and you're thinking you're waiting for somebody with more experience or maybe uh, who's older to set the pace of what it looks like to really follow the Lord, I would say heed the words of Paul. Do not let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers. By the age of 21, Josiah is working hard to undo the damage that his grandfather, Manasseh, had brought on the nation. It's as if he said, as much as it depends on me. I'm going to make sure that this leg of my family tree doesn't rot off. That it doesn't end up the cursed part of the family tree. So he humbles himself before God. He's king over Judah. Most of the time, kings aren't willing to humble themselves before anybody. But here's King Josiah who's who's saying, I will. I will take the knee before the Lord. Look at what he does. Verse 4 says, they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And the incense altars that were high above them, he chopped down. Also the Asherim, the carved images and the molten images, he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem and the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali. You have to recognize these would be areas in the north, part of the northern kingdom, all the surrounding ruins it says he also tore down the altars and beat the asherim and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of israel then he returned to jerusalem so these things that he is leading the effort to destroy are pagan idols they're altars to false gods the religious holy sites for um uh, for pagan rituals so he leads the effort to desecrate them to ruin them to ground them down so they can never be used for that purpose again. And I want you to understand what you are hearing about. What you're reading in this passage is it a, a description of revival. Of revival in the land of Judah. They had been following the ways of their forefathers in this pagan nation. They were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. King Manasseh is described as taking his own sons and throwing them into a fire... As sacrifice to these false gods. So we're talking about serious, serious wickedness in the land. Josiah shows up on the scene. He takes a knee to the Lord. And he begins with a stirring in his heart that becomes revival across the land. Now we're talking about things in political terms as well. So I guess what we could say is reform sweeps across the kingdom of Judah. And it even extends into some of the ancient lands of the northern kingdom of Israel. People all across the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the people of God, are turning their hearts back to the Lord. And Josiah sees the success in his campaign to drive out the paganism left among the people. Look at verse 8. It says, Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, And Messiah, an official of the city. And Joah, the son of Johaz, the recorder to repair the house of the Lord, his God. So what has happened is that Josiah has gained control of the land. He has taken the bull by the horns. He's at the helm of the ship. And at age 26, this is the 18th year of his reign, he now turns his attention to the structure of the temple. So they get rid of all of these pagan sites. Now let's restore... The temple to the one true God, to Yahweh. Now, not only did kings Manasseh and Amon bring in all this pagan ritual, they also neglected the work of the temple. And it implies, the passage does, that it wasn't only that the temple needed to be cleansed, it also needed structural repairs. So verses 9-13 through 13 tell how all of these workers came in to repair the temple. Carpenters, builders all kinds of others involved in the process. They're taking inventory of what's still there in the temple. And now look at verse 14. It says, when they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. So evidently, there was a law book in the temple that had been lost for who knows how long. Most scholars believe that this was the book of Deuteronomy, or much of what we know as Deuteronomy today. Now clearly, that was not a valued text to King Manasseh or King Amon. It could have been that they got lost while they were reigning. Or it could have been that they hid it during the reign, so that they wouldn't destroy it or do harm to it. What we do know is that in the year 621 B.C., The people of Judah laid their hands on the great law book from God to the people. This weekend is one that churches around the globe traditionally remember the Protestant Reformation. It's meant to remind us that on October 31st, 1517, a message was nailed to a church in Germany. What we know as the 95 Theses are hammered to the the Wittenberg church door. Now, a lot of times we think of that as being a real radical move of rebellion. But really what we see happening on this specific day, so just over 500 years ago, is that the, this is the first hint in history that the Western world is about to be flipped upside down. This act of nailing the 95 Theses is not an act of rebellion, but it's really about a person who considers themselves an active member of the church who's calling into account some things that they question about things happening in the church. Certain practices and beliefs that didn't line up with scripture. But what happened was it set off a firestorm that literally changed the trajectory of western civilization as we know it today. The corrupt Roman church began to lose its grip on society. So spiritually speaking, Martin Luther launched a movement after uh, discovering truths from studying God's word. Perhaps just like Josiah and the people of his day. He recognized the truths of God's word did not match the practices in the church. So Luther challenges the status quo. He says it ought not be this way. And so he calls them to account some of the practices that Luther felt were contradictory to the scriptures. And this reform movement gave birth to three key statements. They've we, we remember five, but there were three key statements that really came out of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Fide," sola scriptura, and sola gratia. These are Latin phrases that mean by faith alone, by scripture alone, and by grace alone. And what these statements really mean for us is as Christians, we believe that it is faith over works. Whenever Martin Luther read from Romans, the righteous will live by faith, he realized that's it. It's not the righteous live by works, the righteous live by faith. And then it is church, I mean it's scripture over tradition. So just because the church says it's so, where it doesn't line up, we follow scripture. Because it is by scripture alone. And then also finally, grace over merit. We can't earn favor from God. It's only by grace. Those truths have not changed in the last 500 years. They've only been reinforced in our society. So it's hard to imagine a world that Martin Luther lived in. Where common people did not have access to the scriptures. But the Reformation accelerated this movement. To where now people were receiving the scriptures in a common language. And they were able to hold them. And today, of course, the Bible is the best-selling book in all of history. So Shaphan, in the days of Josiah... Who was assigned with the task as a scribe to go into the temple with those that are doing the repairs. He receives the book of the law. Second king says he reads it. And then he comes before jo- Josiah to report, to say that the progress is being made. And then he tells the king about the book. Look at verses 18 and 19. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. How do you react when you hear God's word? Does it do that kind of thing inside your soul? That you have to respond in such a significant way? Josiah says he tears his clothes. Now that sounds like a, you know, fit of rage. But really for him, it was an act of, um, of great distress. <laughs> This book has been missing. He hears it for the first time. And he's so compelled by what he hears, he begins to tear his clothes and say, what have we done? He recognizes just how far God's people have gone. How they've strayed from the truth of God's word. And he immediately experiences a certain level of spiritual conviction. Look at verse 21. This is how he responds. He says, go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah. Concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us. Because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord. To do according to all that is written in this book. In other words, go find out what this means for us. Josiah believed that because of the way the people had strayed. God would pour out judgment on Judah like they'd never seen before. So they go to a prophetess named Huldah. And in verses 22 through 28. She expresses how she's got great distress because she says there's so many curses in here for the way you've acted. In fact, she says the message from God is this, my wrath will be poured out on this place and it shall not be quenched. But she recognizes the power of one man who's humbled before the Lord. She says God notices Josiah and the way that he has a contrite heart, the way he's humbled himself. Josiah not only humbled himself before God. In a general sense, we see in this passage, he humbles himself before God's word. He sees the scriptures as authority and himself as under the authority of scripture. He wanted to place himself there. He wanted to place the kingdom underneath the authority of God's word. So with all of this information, Josiah is now compelled to humble himself before God's people. Look at how he responds, verses 29 to 31. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people from the greatest to the least. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes. I lost my place there. <laughs> With all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in his book. So Josiah had not only turned his heart toward the Lord, he also turned the hearts of the people toward the Lord. He declared that God's word, his covenant, would be authority over the people and recommitted the nation to being faithful to God. So when God got hold of Josiah's life, he chose a position of humility. It began with being humbled before the Lord. And then he became humbled before God's word as authority over his life. And then he humbled himself before God's people. And I want you to look at the summary comment about Josiah after this and his reign at the end of verse 33. It says, throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. The key message we receive from this passage is that truly following God requires a humble heart. So, what's the problem? If you're honest with yourself about your own life and the state of our world, then I think you have got to admit that we are just too proud of a people to follow God the way we should. Humility sounds like an easy thing. Sure, I'll humble myself before God because he's great and I'm small. But to truly take the knee before him requires so much because we naturally kick against it. We feel like we all have need uh, you know, we we all, you know, we need our, on our own to be on our own. We don't see a need for biblical wisdom. There's enough wisdom in the world that's evolved beyond what the scriptures teach. One of the ways this shows up is we just ignore God's word. We ignore what the Bible says. Sure, we'll sit through a sermon. We'll accept a verse or two as encouragement or comfort along the way. But to listen to the word and then shape our lives according to it and change our thinking because of it. Will we do that? Well, I think we don't. If you decided to demonstrate your belief that God's word is the authority over your life, then how much would your everyday life really change? How want you you think about that? If you really take God's word as it is, then how would your interactions with people change on a regular basis? What about the way that you use your money? What about the passions and the... Uh, Those things that you pursue after in your life. life, The priorities of your life. What about the way you treat family? Or the way you treat the church? I think that way too often we ignore the authority of the scriptures in our own lives. Perhaps we've just grown too accustomed to it. And the Bible has lost its power over us because we know this word. I've heard that story before. I know about King Josiah. Well, the people of King Josiah's day were missing a book of the Bible. We're the absolute opposite. I own so many Bibles. At the touch of a finger, I can bring up any number of versions on my phone, my tablet, on the internet. I can type into a search engine if I want to find a specific verse. I can open a commentary and read about the difficult parts of the scriptures and get somebody, scholars, uh, input on it. I can read a devotional with maybe a verse of scripture, but then something to inspire me through my day. I've got so much access to so much godly wisdom, have I just grown accustomed to it, and now I just ignore it. I got an email from our church member who lives on the mission field. I refer to this person as A. Months ago, A led a Muslim national living in the country where A is serving, led this Muslim national to the Lord. So this new convert is now a secret believer in a nation where they only know of about 20 local Christian national believers. And the new believer asked A if there was a way to have their own copy of the Bible. The new convert had read the Bible online but never had touched a Bible and said, can I get one? Well, of course, that's not easy to come by there. In fact, it's a dangerous thing to own. But A found or got one and gave it to this new convert, a copy of the Bible in Arabic. This is a picture. A brings the Bible to the new believer who reads in Arabic on the cover book of life and then comments, I've never seen a Bible before. I wonder if we take our access to the scriptures for granted, so much so that we don't allow it to have any authority over our lives. We are too proud to humble ourselves before God and his word. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to see revival and reform in your own life? When you look around our world and our community, in your own families, do you notice things spiraling out of control? Are you as concerned as I am at the uh, tension within our nation, at the way in which Those things that we respected as godly are now being thrown out. The number of people who are boldly shaking their fists in the face of God. Are you as concerned as I am? Does it break your heart the way that our world is turning? Do you pray for a move of God in your own heart and in our world? I believe that revival and reform will begin with humility before the Lord and before his word. And this begins right here, right now. Because it's the people of God who recognize these scriptures to be true. Recognize these scriptures to have authority over our life. To shamelessly seek the face of God. I recognize that as a body of believers today, we stand on shoulders. People like Josiah, who in the face of all kinds of opposition, turned the tide of the people back towards God. He followed in the way of Hezekiah and David. I think about people like Martin Luther who loved the Lord more than they loved their life, who was willing to give up so much for the sake of the believers within the church. Even closer to home, here in this church that's 210 years old, we have forefathers who chose to remain faithful to God's word when all kinds of churches and denominations decided they had evolved beyond that and followed the wisdom of the world. These men and women stood firm in believing the Bible to be the inspired and errant word of God. Even today, as we remember the saints of this church who passed on in the last year, so many of them, that's their testimony, of taking God at his word. And we're so thankful for them. So when God got hold of Josiah's life, he humbled himself before God, before God's word, and before God's people. He treated the word as if it was authority in his life. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you humbled yourself before the Lord? It begins with admitting you're a sinner in need of a Savior. If you've never done that, would you do it today? What about your relationship to God's Word? Do you say you don't have enough time to read His Word? I mean, there's no more truth. There's no higher, better encouragement. There's no higher hope than found in this Word. Are you spending time in God's Word as if your life depends on it? I would say that's how we should respond. Perhaps today as a part of responding to this message, you need to humble yourself before God's people, maybe by aligning in church membership through baptism. When God got hold of Josiah's life, he reordered his life and reordered the kingdom under the authority of the Scriptures. Our Father in God, we thank you so much for the witness of Josiah. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it's not archaic, that it's so applicable to us today. We pray, God, that you would have your way right now in our hearts and in our lives. Father, that we would open ourselves to personal conviction as we read your word or hear your word, that we would do what it says. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God, speak to into your heart. You have a decision to make. I encourage you to do it. It might be responding to the Lord, it might be following in believers' baptism, joining our church. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Our choir is going to sing. If God's speaking to your heart this morning, would you respond? voice